Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, the anthropologist Eric Reinhardt will talk about how people cycling in and out of jail is spreading the coronavirus. And the sociologist Aaron Hatton will talk about coerced labor from prisoners to, surprisingly perhaps, college athletes. First, how our mad carceral state is helping spread COVID-19. The role of prisons as corona hotspots is fairly well known. Less known, however, is the role of jails. Prisons are places where people are held after conviction for a major crime. Jails are where people are caged for short times after arrest and while awaiting trial. In 2018, almost 11 million people were admitted to jails, where they spent an average of 25 days. That means there's a rapid turnover of a very large number of people. Eric Reinhardt, an anthropologist, and Daniel Chen, an economist, have a paper in Health Affairs that estimates how that jail turnover has resulted in the spread of COVID-19 in Chicago. That city's Cook County Jail has achieved notoriety as a major corona hotspot in itself, but little attention until now has been paid to how the jail affects the city at large. Reinhardt and Chen find that one in six cases of corona in the city can be traced to that jail, and the role of the jail in spreading the disease helps explain the disproportionate effect it's had on black people, who are, of course, disproportionately incarcerated. Here's Eric Reinhardt with more. He's a graduate student in anthropology at Harvard and a candidate in adult psychoanalysis at the Chicago Center for Psychoanalysis. Eric Reinhardt. We're all aware, uh, or most of us are aware, that the count of uh, two million people behind bars in this country but uh, less well-known is how many people get arrested, spend some time in jail, cycle in and out. Uh, how many people are we talking about who experience that? Yeah, it's about 5 million people nationally who are cycled through jails every year. 42% of them, according to an American Economic Review study that looks specifically at Philadelphia County and Miami-Dade County, 42% of them roughly will be proven innocent. And 95% nationally are taken to jail for nonviolent offenses, most of them petty crimes pretty alleged crimes. Yeah, that American Economic Review article is interesting. I read through some of that earlier. Being kept in jail before your trial has pretty bad effects, both on, on the verdict and your future life chances, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, it's a huge problem. I mean, it's been brought to the fore recently in recent years. I mean, people have been talking about it for a long time, but to popular consciousness because of the campaigns against cash bail, which obviously discriminate against the poor and people of color. Of course, class and race are mixed up quite closely in this country. Now, of course, uh, you're going to hear some conservatives say uh, public safety requires locking up all these people. What do you say to that? There's a Brennan Center study out of NYU that shows about 40% of the prison population. So these are actually people who have been convicted of crimes. With 40% of the prison population, there is no compelling public safety reason for these people to be locked up. When you're talking about the, the jail population, like I said, 42% roughly are going to be proven innocent. The vast majority are there for not vast vast majority are there for nonviolent offenses. These are not serial killers that the study is suggesting maybe we need to reconsider their arrest or their detainment. These are homeless people who pee on the street because they don't have a place to go to the bathroom. These are people like uh, George Floyd, for example, who is alleged to have passed a counterfeit $20 bill. There are not real public safety reasons to detain these people. There are a lot of ways you can manage these kinds of alleged crimes. You know, you can, many of them have to do with big structural issues like poverty, lack of adequate housing, lack of food security, lack of basic income so they can provide for themselves. This produces desperation in some circumstances. This is not unrelated. But regardless of the cause, there are many much more effective ways to manage alleged petty crimes. You can issue citations, you can require community service, you can provide people with mental health referrals, you can provide people with adequate housing and food support. I mean, these would be rational responses to the vast majority of the crimes, alleged crimes, for which we arrest and incarcerate people in jails in the U.S. every year. So I very much disagree with this Wall Street Journal, for example, kind of opinion that if you stop arresting these people, if you stop locking them up, which constitutionally you still have to release them, they've been convicted of no crime. Even if you don't care about their rights, you don't care about ethics at all, you cannot legally just perpetually lock such people up. But there's no reason at all to do that. And the study, you know, I think lends no support at all to such a conclusion, which is legally irrational, but um, or legally unjustifiable, and it's also completely irrational. Yeah, I want to get back to that Wall Street Journal editorial uh, after we talk about your findings. But yeah, uh, tell us about the work. Um, who do you study and uh, what do you find? Well, it's a small study. It's a preliminary study. Uh, initially, I was just watching the media coverage of this issue, and all the focus was on jail and prison epidemics, the harms that were accruing to 
people who are detained in these facilities, which is obviously very important. But what was not being discussed was the way in which these kinds of facilities are integrated with communities and neighborhoods. So every day in the U.S. you arrest 28,000 people and you release a nearly commensurate number back into communities. Most people stay in the jail for a matter of days, some only hours. So I, I was thinking this has to be implicated in the spread of COVID. So I, after a few days of discontent of watching nobody do anything about this, um, I filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the Cook County Sheriff's Office. I got data from the Illinois, Illinois Department of Public Health and then just publicly available from publicly available data from the U.S. Census and American Community Survey. And with that, we had zip code level data for all of the released detainees, all of those who were booked and released from Cook County Jail from February 1st to the day they delivered the data, April 19th. We've since gotten updates. And using that with the control variables we used, which are included race, poverty, population density, public transit utilization race, uh, rate, age, and gender distribution. When we control for all of those other variables, which are significant, several of them are significant in the bivariate and multivariate regression analyses that we run, so with and without controls. When we control for all those, we find that jail cycling independently accounts for one in six cases in the state of Illinois and in the city of Chicago. And we're just looking at one jail, Cook County Jail. There's some contestation about this, but one of the largest jail facilities in the U.S., it might be the largest single standing, um, like, like single institution um, that isn't dispersed across different sites, like in LA, for example. So it's a big site, but it's only one jail in Illinois. There are a lot of other jails. And these similar, these dynamics that we observe there, we expect are happening in other places. I don't know if you want to jump in, but I'll just keep... Well, I was just going to say, I mean, we can imagine multiplied by, you know, Rikers and all similar facilities around the country with you have this kind of turnover of people being thrown in and then allowed to let out a few days later, later for no good law enforcement or, or public safety reason. They just get thrown in these hell holes. And then now they get sent back to their, their families or their communities and are spreading disease. Yeah. I mean, what a big part of the problem here, and this is what Sheriff Dart in Chicago, who is a relatively reformist sheriff, has tried to make uh, progressive changes within the jail system here in combination with the judge, Judge Evans, here. This is unfortunately what I, I've been trying to kind of get this through, but I haven't had so much success right now. This is not just a, a problem at the level of internal jail conditions. When you arrest as many people as we do in the U.S., and you are by standard policy required to process them through these facilities, you cannot adequately protect against infectious spread. And this is not just once they've been booked into the jail and are in cells. It's even more importantly in the processing time. So even if you take somebody to the jail, like, for example, these recent protester arrests, many of them transporting paddy wagons, essentially, with other people. Most of the time, the, I've heard from various sources that the police are taking their masks off, which increases the risk of transmission. Of course, even with the masks on, there's a risk of transmission. You take them to the jail. You put them in these rooms. I've been in these rooms. I've done anthropological work at this jail before at Cook County. These rooms don't have HEPA filters like airplanes. You know, the, 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 it's stagnant air. You have hundreds of people waiting in lines. Vice has a documentary on the facilities. You can, it's from another time, but you can still see these rooms. Even if only one person who has been arrested there has COVID, maybe doesn't even have symptoms, so they don't have COVID. They just have SARS-CoV-2 in their body, and they're shedding the virus. If only one person who brought it from outside is in that facility, by the end of that processing period, which takes hours typically, many, many people will be infected. So if the jail responds by saying, okay, we are going to test everybody at time of booking, which Cook County Jail is now doing, that's not going to capture this because there's a, a necessary incubation period after somebody is exposed before you're going to be able to pick it up on a test. So they're testing people finding that they're negative on the test, releasing them back to their communities, many right now within hours, because they've been really trying to reduce the jail population. These people believe that they're negative for SARS-CoV-2. In many cases, will never express symptoms. They won't even know that they're carrying the virus, but they are carrying the virus, and they're infecting their families, their neighbors, potentially their close contacts. This becomes a huge problem, and you can't solve it. Cook County Sheriff Dart here does not have the capacity to solve it by making changes in the jail itself. You have to address this at the level of arrest volume. And as you said earlier, there really isn't a good, compelling public safety reason to arrest the vast majority of these people. And certainly not during a pandemic, 
when now by arresting these people, you are infecting communities across America. This study was looking specifically at Cook County Jail, in part because we could do it at this very micro level of zip code. I mean, comparatively, compared to other studies that have been done at zip code level data. But we're now completing a study with county level data across the country, and we see something very similar. Uh, we're going to submit that this week for peer review. But what we see there, I can't give you the exact numbers because it depends on specifications. I don't want to say anything that's not correct. But what we see there is for X number of arrests, and it's a, it's a, we have many more arrests than that in Chicago every day. It's roughly 100 arrests. You undo the effect of social distancing policies. So if you have stay-at-home orders issued in a state and you're arresting in that county or in a county and you're arresting in that county 100 people, the benefit you've accrued by issuing the stay-at-home order is undone by the fact of jail cycling. So this is a big issue that goes far beyond, and that's for every county in the 50 states in Washington, D.C. So this goes far beyond just Cook County or one jail. This implicates an entire criminal justice system. And if we want to have any kind of effective response to COVID, if like the Trump administration is trying to prioritize, you want to reopen the economy successfully and not provoke subsequent waves where we have to then shut down, reopen, shut down. A huge part of that, a huge piece of that, in and of itself not enough, but very important to include, is addressing the unnecessary arrests that we are, by standard policy, uh, proceeding with in the thousands every single day in the United States. Now, this would uh, go some way to explain why uh, the impact of COVID has been disproportionately large in uh, communities of color, communities with high poverty rates, communities of color, which is often saying the same thing in the U.S. Um, so this, this jail uh, route of transmission is not very widely appreciated, but it would seem to be quite significant. Yes. Uh, and the racial dimensions here are, are very big, as you comment. So at Cook County Jail, depending upon the year, you see roughly 70 to 75% of the people who are cycled through that particular jail are black. In our study, with zip code level data, I can tell you that 60% of the additional COVID cases that are associated with jail cycling are occurring in black majority zip codes in Chicago. If you look statewide, there are obviously very different demographics statewide in Illinois, it's still 52% of additional cases are arising uh, in black majority zip codes. So this is a huge racial justice issue. Chicago has a very particular demographic constitution with intense segregation. You have that in some other cities in the U.S., but, but not all of them. But there is a national problem of racial discrimination within our criminal justice system. And that we have every reason to believe that translates to a disproportionate burden of this problem being borne by black families, black neighborhoods, and black deaths, frankly. I'm speaking with the anthropologist Eric Reinhardt. You mentioned uh, there are other factors which you controlled for to isolate the effect of the jail cycling. But what were those other factors and how do they stack up? Yeah, the main ones that we looked at. So we have an appendix with some additional factors. But the four controls that we put in the main text, which seem most important, and our data bore that out, were percent of residents in a zip code who identifies black, that's census data, public transit utilization rate from U.S. Uh, community survey data, uh, American Community Survey data, and then um, poverty rate and uh, population density. All of these we have seen in various places are very closely associated with COVID rates. So those are the controls we looked at. Uh, race and uh, poverty are very strongly associated. Independently, jail cycling is more strongly associated. The, and in the bivariate correlations, it's also you see the strongest basic correlation with jail cycling as opposed to the others. But when you control for all of the factors and evaluate, you isolate each one independent of the other four. So we're also controlling for jail cycling while looking at race, et cetera. We find that race and poverty are very significant within Chicago. If you sum the association of race, poverty, and jail cycling, it's associated with 60% of the cases in, in Illinois. So that's a very big uh, number. So it, it'd be absolutely wrong to interpret this as, oh, this is not, this study shows that race and poverty are not significant factors. It's just jail cycling. No, they are all working together and they independently all have an effect or they all have an association, which one can reasonably infer might be something like a cause effect, but you can't scientifically prove that at this moment. You need a randomized controlled trial for that. That data doesn't exist and nobody has been able to do that yet. But without a randomized controlled trial, you can still do good science and you can produce preliminary results that can inform policy. And uh, as I said earlier, uh, there's every reason to believe that this is quite representative of other, I was going to say urban jails, but not necessarily even urban. I mean, it could be country jails too. 
Yeah, actually, interestingly, in the in the other study that's ongoing, I haven't quite finished, but I'm, I'm drafting it today and tomorrow and hope to get it out soon. What we've seen is that actually this is a huge problem in rural areas too. It seems that, okay, so say, you know, COVID has just begun and there aren't many cases in your area, but you have social distancing put in place, you have stay-at-home orders put in place. There are now suddenly not so many venues in which there's a risk of mass spread. The one that remains undisturbed is jail processing and uh, jail internal conditions. So it seems actually that this effect is even stronger in rural areas. This is what our preliminary data analysis shows. And my thought there is that it might basically have a seeding effect. So you have nobody that's positive in the jail, but then one day you get one person, he's processed or he or she is processed along with 60 other people or 40 other people in this rural jail. The rest of them are now very likely to be infected. They're released within days. Nobody knows they're infected and they go back to their communities. So this is not just an urban issue. It's not just an issue of large cities. This is a problem of jails across the country. The Wall Street Journal took your work and did something very perverse with it. What did they yeah. do? Uh, it starts with the, the lead, which um, we're looking at pretrial detainees. These are jails, not prisons. It's hard for me to imagine that the Wall Street Journal editorial board does not know the difference between jails and prisons. Jails house pretrial detainees who have not been convicted of a crime unless they just have it in their weighty transport. Prisons house people who have been convicted of crimes. They, in their lead said that the release of criminals is causing, I mean, I forget the exact phrasing, but the key piece is the release of criminals is causing spread of COVID. And this is kind of a scare tactic because, of course, the early responses here were to say, you know, there are a lot of people in prisons nationally who are at high risk for very severe cases, and they don't pose a public safety threat. We should release them out of compassionate concerns. We should accelerate releases for those who would have been released shortly anyway. They're trying to instrumentalize our study against those early release policies, which we show in our paper. We don't show with data, but like we, we quite clearly state that we believe these are very important measures, but they're not adequate measures. We also, also have to address arrests and jailing. So their, their whole premise began from a conflation of pretrial detainees with criminals, which is, I mean, this is not a matter of opinion. This is legal definition. These people are not. I'm criminals. sure the attitude, though, is if they're arrested, they're guilty. Uh, in this case, yeah. And I think when 75% of those arrested at Cook County Jail, despite the fact that 40 are, are black, despite the fact that 42% of them are going to be proven innocent, yeah, you have to think there's some kind of uh, racial sacrificial logic that seems to be operating there. I mean, maybe that's too strong an accusation, but it's hard for me to ignore the way in which the writers of that editorial are very ready to sacrifice people of color. Because what they advocate is for just keeping all these people locked up permanently <laughs> to protect everybody else. One, that won't work. But two, that's unconstitutional. And three, these, these are many people who are in jails because of issues related to poverty, homelessness, and racism in policing. The proper response, an ethical response, a legal response, an effective public health response does not consist of just sacrificing them by having them all die in jails. So... Yeah, I couldn't disagree more strongly with the Wall Street Journal's misrepresentation of the study. There are also additional factual errors. Like they say that we do not find a correlation between race and poverty and COVID. And that is in multiple places in the paper expressly contravening that statement, including in the main text and also in the tables. It's almost as if they had a preconceived notion they wanted to... Uh... Oh, I proof. can't imagine that's the case. I, <laughs> I can't imagine that either. <laughs> so what kind of reaction have you gotten to this research? I mean, is anybody listening? You know, this has been the sobering reality. I haven't done this kind of research before. I'm an anthropologist. Most of my work is theoretical. I do work on aesthetic practices on the south side of Chicago. And I really haven't focused on a lot of quantitative research. I've done a few other pieces, but not much. And nothing with such immediate public policy significance. The sobering realization is that science does not matter unless influential people pick it up. And influential people are celebrities, really popular journalists, people like this. Without that kind of attention, it's very difficult to bring this to the attention of relevant policymakers. I've, I've been surprised, actually, that the number of academics uh, who are invested in this area who also do not, do not seem to care much. So it's a, it's a strange uh, realization. The Washington Post ran a, a reasonably good article on it. They, unfortunately, have given the sheriff, um, along with some other journalists, uh, a place to comment and kind of mislead about certain parts of the study without consulting me to give, give me an opportunity to reply. He in particular, there's a, there are lawsuits out against Cook County Jail because of the sanitation accusations about sanitation practices there. 
and he's uh, the Cook County Sheriff is a bit defensive about this for understandable reasons. So he's been trying to frame this as a past issue, that now that they've ramped up testing, now that they've improved sanitation practices, this isn't an issue anymore. And I'm glad that they've done those things, but that does not resolve the issue, as I've tried to explain. The issue is related to processing. Additionally, internal jail conditions, but you, but you cannot change the very dangerous conditions of processing with existing physical spaces, etc., unless you can address the front-end problem of huge numbers of unnecessary arrests. There's been some other media coverage that has also kind of given him space to say this, which I understand he should have space to comment, but, but I think it's unfortunate because it blunts what is the very persistently pertinent parts of the study, which is that we need to address this on a large policy level now, not a level of one jail, one sheriff, you know, even one municipality. This has to be done at a, at a massive level. So I'm still trying to get attention to this uh, for the study at higher levels where people might have the power to, to do that. And obviously, even that attention, if I were to get it, is still not enough. You have to have mass collective action that demands that these changes be implemented. Well, it's odd to see all these people worrying publicly about all the protesters who are outdoors and very often masked, spreading disease, but not much concern about what happens to all those who got arrested. Yeah, it's a huge problem. You probably know the arrest numbers uh, better than I. I've kind of lost track. But last I checked, it was over 15,000 protesters arrested, many of them, again, without a good public safety reason for it. And there have been some places that have decided they're not going to prosecute. Great. But you, need, you should not be arresting these people. You arrest them. You put them in crowded transit vehicles. You make them wait at jails to, for hours to be processed. You're exposing them to infection. They go back to their communities and they're infecting other people unbeknownst to themselves. So this is a huge problem. I, th I, th I do suspect that the protests will coincide with something of a, of a surge in cases, but I don't think it's actually going to be because of the protests themselves, but rather the police management of it. As you said, when people are outdoors, masked, the risk of transmission is quite low outdoors. The real risk is when you put people in confined spaces in crowds with stagnant air, this is where you have huge infection risks. So... So we'll see how this bears out. Um, but, I, but I have my suspicions as to the direction it's going to go. Yeah, I have a Facebook friend who's a public defender uh, in New York. And uh, she thinks the way the, um, the cops took people's masks away with glee as they arrested them, that almost as if they really want to make them sick. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I don't actually have firsthand knowledge of this, but I've spoken to quite a few reporters at this point who have covered this. And I've asked them this question. Uh, and the people that they have interviewed in jails, uh, or sorry, rather after they've been released from jails, they confirm that in their experience, the police have been taking away people's masks upon arrest, which is a very uh, strange thing to do, because not only is it putting these detained persons at risk, it's putting the police and the jail guards themselves at risk. I mean, of course, who this is disproportionately affecting most is Black Americans in highly policed, criminalized neighborhoods. But the fact is, this is not a, should not really be a partisan issue or an issue that inheres in whether or not you, you know, are committed to racial justice in this country. If you just have basic self-interest, you should be concerned about this issue because infectious disease does not respect racist segregation. Uh, it does not respect geographical boundaries all that well. So somebody on the south side of Chicago in a neighborhood that's 99% black does ultimately present a risk to the rich white person in Lincoln Park up here on the north side. This, like, what ep epidemiology teaches us is that our bodies are very much connected. So when the cops are doing this, they're not just harming the protesters. They're harming themselves. They're harming their other police officers. They're harming their own communities, uh, the communities in which they live, even if they might be miles away from the communities in which the protesters live. So this is a big, a big problem. That was the anthropologist Eric Reinhardt. You can find the paper he co-wrote with Daniel Chen on the Health Affairs website, healthaffairs.org. In the interview, I asked Reinhardt about the effects of pretrial detention on the defendant's ultimate verdict and future life outcomes, as reported in a 2018 paper in the American Economic Review. That study found a significantly lower conviction rate, mainly because of a smaller number of guilty pleas, when defendants are let out before trial mainly, as the authors put it, through a strengthening of the defendant's bargaining positions before trial. And the authors, Will Dobby, Jacob Golden, and Crystal Yang, also find that defendants released before trial are more likely to find work upon release than those who are detained awaiting trial. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Get straight, wait here a while. 
some of the police in the private by metric every time i listen to metric i worry i'm going soft but i keep going back next coerced labor most people have to work because if they don't they'll quickly go broke some jobs however come with special forms of coercion which is the topic of my next guest book erin hatton teaches sociology at the university of buffalo her book coerced work under the threat of punishment was published a few months ago by the university of california press in it, she explores four classes of worker, prisoners, people on workfare, grad students in the sciences, and star college athletes. Obviously, people in these categories experience widely varying degrees of freedom and prestige, but they all share a common feature. Their bosses can ruin them in an instant. Aaron Hatton. This is not the book you set out to write, right? Uh, could you tell us how you got into this project and how it evolved into what it did? That's right. So when I started this project, which was now some number of years ago, maybe like seven, I was interested in those groups of workers who are kind of variously unprotected by labor and employment law. So the first group of workers that I set out to interview were prisoners, incarcerated workers, people who work behind bars, because in fact, most prisoners actually do perform some form of labor. And then I wanted to interview uh, workfare workers, those are welfare recipients who are required to work in order for their public assistance. Um, and so both of those workers are largely not protected by labor and employment laws, right? They don't have the right to organize and bargain collectively. They don't have the right to minimum wage and overtime. The workfare workers now, through litigation, did gain some degree of labor and employment protection, right? So they're kind of middling protected and unprotected. Prisoners are totally unprotected. Um, and then I wanted to interview domestic workers, people who work in our homes um, behind closed doors, may or may not have an employer of record, and in New York State, at least, had recently gained most labor and employment protections except for the right to unionize. But as I started with these interviews, started talking to prisoners, well, recently released prisoners about their work, and then workfare workers, and then also domestic workers, they seemed to be very different groups. And, and what really came to the fore of this research were the power dynamics that were really at the heart of both prison labor and workfare, but were not um, so at the heart of the domestic workers I interviewed. And so I kind of switched up my project, shifted it to focus on this power, to understand this power and, and the really the coercion that came to the fore and then I dropped my analysis of domestic workers from the book and included two other groups, student athletes, um, specifically Division I football and basketball players, and graduate students in the sciences who work in labs as part of their education. Okay, so people uh, looking at those four groups would say two of them, prisoners especially, but also workfare workers, you know, pretty much the uh, the bottom of the social hierarchy, often despised uh, by uh, the masses and even themselves. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, you know, you'd look at uh, student athletes uh, on scholarship and uh, graduate students in in the sciences, and they look pretty privileged. So, what do these all have in common? That's exactly right, and I think that's kind of one of the things about this book that makes it kind of interesting and weird and different. Now, I mean, let me say here that I'm not trying to say that these groups are the same, not really in any way, right? Like PH students are not prisoners, nor are student athletes. They have very different levels of real privilege and marginalization and vulnerability. But I do argue that they all experience the same type of labor coercion, just like uh, lower level workers, day laborers, and middle level and upper level managers, they all experience economic coercion, right? They will all suffer 
um, if they lose their wages, if they lose their jobs, but they're going to suffer to different degrees. And so that's the that's what I'm talking about here with these four very, very different groups of workers. They all experience a similar type of coercion. Their bosses had a similar expansive punitive power over them, but they have very different levels of vulnerability and marginalization. Yeah, at the beginning of the book, you go into the history of some of these ideas uh, and talk about uh, three groups in particular, paupers, slaves, and housewives, uh, and the narratives of immorality and privilege around them. Uh, how are these the roots of, of the, the analysis that you uh, train on uh, contemporary uh, workers? Yeah, so I, so I do think that these rhetorics of privilege, as well as criminality, are deployed very strategically against these groups to delegitimize their claims to worker rights. So as you suggested uh, earlier, the first two groups, prisoners and workfare workers, are seen as um, disreputable populations in American culture. They're often explicitly criminalized, right? We presume all people behind bars to be terrible, terrible criminals. Some of them are, some of them are not. Um, also, workfare workers, people who receive public assistance are criminalized and, and often treated as such by the system. They're presumed to be defrauding the welfare system. Um, so those are overtly criminalized populations. But then the other two groups are framed as highly privileged groups. Um, and so what I do in that first substantive chapter of the book is I trace these rhetorics, both of criminalization and of privilege, to show how they're kind of levied, they're deployed against these groups to say, you're not a real worker, you don't deserve the rights of workers, you're, you deserve what you get, whether it's being punished through labor and solitary confinement behind bars, or whether it's saying, what do you expect? You're an athlete, you throw football for a living, do you want to get paid for that? Give me a break. Um, you're lucky to be where you are. And so we, I delve deep into how these rhetorics, and I trace them back to these other groups of uh, workers in the past, when our kind of modern notions of work were really getting established, and people were forced to work in poor houses in America and in the UK, um, when people were put to work in prisons, uh, particularly after emancipation from slavery and former slaves, and with housewives, when this category of white middle-class housewife was first constructed and how white middle-class women were said to be too privileged to work, too um, weak, too vulnerable to the bad influences of the workplace. So their, their weakness as well as their privilege were used to say that they shouldn't and couldn't be workers. And so I look at all, how all of these things are used to delegitimize groups of workers in different ways across time. All right, so let's go uh, through each of these uh, groups of workers in turn. Uh, prisoners. Uh, George Whitman, uh, the legal historian, makes the point that in the U.S., which is not the case in most other countries, people are viewed as criminals, as their essence in some sense. It's not just that they just committed a crime, but you're a criminal for life. There's something very defective about you, uh, which is something that uh, U.S. law or U.S. tradition shares with the Nazis, uh, as Whitman points out. But uh, yeah, how does that notion of the criminal as a deeply flawed person construct the way we uh, um, treat prison workers? Yes. So, I mean, it must be said that we haven't always, over the course of U.S. history, seen prisoners as deeply and permanently flawed. There used to be at least a sense that prisons could be spaces for rehabilitation. Um, but now that's largely just empty rhetoric. And for the most part, the system and popular culture view prisons as spaces for these deeply and permanently flawed human beings. And we don't really do much, if anything at all, to help to rehabilitate, to get people set up for a future outside of prison. And so being really forced to work, because as we should know, prison labor is the sole exception to slavery in the U.S. So they can be legally forced to work or legally enslaved. Prison labor is often seen as just part and parcel of their punishment. And, and you know, I've had interviews recently where people are like, well, but they're prisoners. What do you expect? I mean, they're behind bars. They've lost their freedoms. And my answer to that is <laughs> uh, we, we have this kind of massive pile on. It's not enough now to separate someone from their family for sometimes years at a time for often rather modest offenses, even kind of you know, things that have become now legal, such as marijuana possession. But now we expect them to be forced to labor 
sometimes in kind of punitive conditions, like being asked to clean up feces without proper equipment. And then if they don't do it, and this is the type of punishment I examine in the book, if they don't perform labor to their boss's liking, if they refuse to do a particularly disgusting job or a punishment that is designed to take away their self-respect, such as cleaning the floor with a toothbrush, if they don't do it, then their boss, the corrections officer, can put them in solitary confinement, right? Throw them into a segregated cell for 23 hours a day without human interaction, with no communication with their family and friends, the very definition of torture for a social being. Solitary confinement is thought of as an extraordinary punishment, but it's actually become quite ordinary in American prisons, hasn't it? It is absolutely ordinary. That is the thing that officers will do if you do not obey any order, no matter what the content of the order. That is the rote punishment. And there are no limits as to how long people can be put in solitary confinement. Often it's for a month. But honestly, there are no limits on the reasons people can be put in solitary and for how long they can be put in solitary. And then there are also other punishments like uh, being beaten up and the wall. I hadn't heard about the wall before. What's that? That's right. Well, in New York State prisons, at least, because I I interviewed um, folks who had just come out of New York State prisons. What happens when there's a situation that's getting out of control or whatever, the officer wants to control prisoners, they tell everyone to get on the wall. And so what the prisoners are supposed to do is stand at kind of at a 45 degree angle with their arms and legs outspread against kind of any nearby wall. If they're outside, they need to go to the fence, whatever it is. They need to stand at the wall and they need to be precisely still. This is for the officers to shut down a situation. Let's say there's a fight outside or let's say even a prisoner is sassing an officer or let's say sometimes it's even if they look you in the eyeball. Because prisoners aren't supposed to look officers in their faces. They're supposed to look down and be submissive at all times. Okay, so they put them on the wall and they're not supposed to move. And any move or any pretense of a move, any suggestion of a move or an officer says you're moving, but you weren't really moving, then you can expect they're going to pull the cord, call all the officers. They'll come. They'll subdue you with physical force that is entirely expected. They will take you to what the prisoners call the box, solitary confinement, often with real physical force, if not all out beating you up. And they'll leave you there, usually without medical attention. Again, this is not uncommon. When I, I finally started asking the people that I was interviewing about this, I said, oh, wait, if you are taken to the box, are, are you beaten up? They're like, oh, well, yeah. I mean, it was so common that they, they didn't even think of telling me about that. Of course, they're going to subdue you. Of course, they're going to smack you around when they take you to the box. That's just what they do. And uh, of course, so if you don't uh, do your job, no matter how uh, degrading or uh, revolting, um, that's the punishment that awaits you. Yes, for the most part. I mean, there are other punishments that are more minor. You may get a ticket, which is like a week's worth of wages taken away. You may be put on keep lock, which is locked into your own cell rather than put in a segregated cell. All of these things can have the effect of removing the things that are called privileges behind bars. So getting edible food from the commissary, getting family visits, being able to use the phone to call your children and your loved ones. But solitary is really one of the most common. How much of the prisoners internalize this view of them as lazy, flawed, uh, in need of this kind of discipline? It seems like a lot of the prisoners you interviewed actually um, uh, had internalized um, those, those views. You know, there's great variation. Many have and many haven't. I interviewed, I believe it was 43 prisoners. And, you know, there are different degrees. I mean, prisoners are just simply Americans. And like all Americans, they're extremely heterogeneous. And they also have very complicated views about themselves, American culture, their situation. So I opened the book with extended quotes from one of the men I interviewed uh, named Apache. Well, that's a pseudonym. And Apache said, look, I'm not going to say that this isn't slave labor. It is slave labor. Being forced to work behind bars is slave labor. But then he goes on to say, but what would you expect? When you're behind bars, that's what you should expect to be forced to work like a slave because people were out here. My mom and my wife were out here working and you were out here working, paying for me to be behind bars where I wasn't doing anything. That's what he says. Although, of course, he was doing stuff. He was working. He was required to work and he worked quite a lot. Um, So he has this very complicated view. He recognizes the work and the force and nature of the work and all that he is doing at the same time he believes that that is what prisoners should face. Now, 
Other prisoners didn't agree with that. On the one hand, some felt even more accepting and did not believe that prison labor was slave labor at all, that it was simply part of the punishment that they should comply with, while others argued vehemently and articulately against this form of coerced labor. I'm speaking with the sociologist, Aaron Hatton. Uh, moving up the uh, social hierarchy some, uh, workfare recipients, a lot of them uh, also exhibited these contradictory attitudes towards uh, the requirements uh, for them to work to get their benefits. That's right. Few groups have been as pilloried in American culture as welfare recipients. And welfare recipients themselves are Americans, are of American culture. And many of them, though not all, but many of them too, believed this mythical notion of the welfare recipient who just sits on her butt because it's a, a feminized population by and large. They believed that there was some myth. Although you interviewed uh, several men. That's right. Yeah, yes. it but wasn't I mean, just... There are diverse populations in all of these groups, um, but in popular culture, they're largely feminized. And of course, in practice, there is quite a feminized population as well because people are generally required to have children in the home in order to receive benefits, and that's disproportionately women. But yes, they too kind of bought this notion of welfare recipients who are lazy and who are defrauding the system. Although by and large, studies show again and again that that's simply not the case. Yeah, this is a long way from the welfare rights movement to the 70s. That's right. The other pair of, of categories you speak with, um, graduate students and college athletes, uh, both are perceived in some sense as being an apprenticeship of some sort. You, know, you, you have a rough time as a graduate student, but then you get your PhD and then you join the, uh, the scientific elite. College athletes, you know, you have uh, you, you get a free ride through college, maybe, and then uh, end up in pro sports, which is a pretty lucrative and uh, uh, glamorous thing to do. So, how do they fit into this uh, this uh, this category? Yeah. So, one of the things I do, as I was suggesting earlier, is that I I really kind of expose these rhetorics for what they are: strategic rhetoric deployed to delegitimize their claims to rights. So in the case of workfare workers and prisoners, we're saying, oh, well, you're um, criminals. What do you expect? You're dependents on the system. What do you expect? You need to pay your money back. You're being rehabilitated. You're getting benefits from the state. What do you expect? Right. And so for these other two groups, these two student groups, different rhetorics are used towards the same end. So we say, oh, no, you're lucky to be where you are. So many people would love to be where you are. You knew what you were doing. You knew what you were going to get once you went in there. What do you expect? You are a student. You're getting an education. What do you expect? You're getting a free ride through school. What do you expect? So we kind of marshal all of these logic logics against them to suggest that they're not real workers. But of course, there are other people performing similar labor who are getting paid for that work. And it also should be noted that the privilege that we, how privileged we say they are is really not quite true. Um, so only what 2% of um, football and basketball players make it to the professional leagues. I mean, a remarkably small percent. And so for them, for most of these athletes, this is the apex of their career. And they work their butts off to get there. They're working day in and day out to be there. And so it even increases the leverage that their coaches have over them because this is it. This is their big time. And they'll do a lot to stay there. But it means that their coaches can pressure them to play through injuries. Their coaches can pressure them to not go to mental health counseling, um, to not report uh, verbal abuse or other forms of abuse from coaches, all sorts of things. Um, their coaches have quite a lot of power over them. And one more thing. For graduate students, nowadays in the sciences, you're in graduate school getting your PhD for maybe five, six, seven years. Then you don't go, you don't get a um, tenure track job for the most part. By and large, if they're going the academic route, they get a postdoc, which can last as long as eight, 10 or 12 years before they can maybe land a real job. Something that the athletes uh, and uh, the graduate students have in common is that their bosses, if we can call them that, their reputation uh, and their salaries depend upon the work of these unrecognized and un unappreciated uh, underlings. Like the, the, the coaches all depend on having players uh, excel, and uh, the graduate students do a lot of work that the pr uh, professors publish under their names. So this is um, it's a kind of um, exploitation of labor uh, for uh, the enhancement of the reputation of, and, and uh, affluence of the, the coaches and, and the professors. 
That's exactly right. And it makes this kind of really intense pressure cooker situation where the coaches' reputations and their jobs depend on the performance of their athletes. And for in the case of graduate school bosses, advisors in the sciences, their whole academic career, their publications, their grants, their patents, their promotion and tenure cases rely on the labor of their advisees, their graduate students in the lab, because the lab workers, the graduate students are the ones who are doing all the work, doing the research. The advisors are the ones who are kind of um, sitting back, working on grants, advising it, maybe consulting with them every week, making sure it's going okay, and pushing them to work harder because their careers depend on it. And so it's an incredibly intense situation where the student workers in these cases have almost none of the power. The bosses have all of the power and their careers depend on the extraction of those students' labor. Uh, you point out that um, we're not dealing just with exploitation in the Marxist sense, you know, uncompensated labor making making the bosses rich, but also a kind of domination. I was thinking, I was reminded of Philip Murawski's point that uh, humiliation is an important part of the neoliberal model. In all four of these cases, uh, the bosses routinely insult and degrade their underlings. How does that kind of degradation, humiliation fit into this uh, structure? Yeah, well, so there are a couple of things going on here. I mean, of course, all kind of labor relations and, and relations of uneven power have these elements of exploitation and domination. And in the workplaces, the labor relations that I analyze, you see them to different degrees. So in the first two, the prisoners and the workfare workers, those labor relations are more characterized by domination, by the degradation, by the tearing down than they are the extraction of kind of capital from them. Now, there's extraction as well. They are exploiting their labor to make money or the prisons are using prisoner labor to avoid paying tons of civilian workers to keep the prisons running, right? Um, so there is definitely extraction going on, but it's really about domination and control. For the other groups, it's the reverse. It's more about extraction of their labor while keeping them convinced that they're lucky to be there, that they need to be submissive. And it's less about domination, though there is that domination as well. And because none of these um, labor relations that I analyze are really thought of as workplaces. There are no HR departments kind of looking over their shoulders, making sure that the workers are treated well. Then you have situations that are so rife with abuse and the workers who are relatively powerless can do very, very little about it. So when you have abusive coaches, when you have abusive advisors, it's very, very bad for these workers. Under circumstances like these, humans are always going to resist in some way. How did um, the, the people you studied carve out some spaces of resistance because the, the, the consequences of uh, insolence could be very, very severe? So how did they um, retain some sense of dignity in all this? That's right. They did, and they continually sought to retain dignity, and they did it in different ways in these different spaces. For people who were working behind bars in prison and in workfare, most often they they adopted what I call this kind of strategic avoidance and compliance. So they would do only as much as they had to do while avoiding their bosses as much as possible to avoid any kind of confrontation, as well as to avoid the overt disrespect they face, they receive from their bosses on a daily basis. So is this kind of strategic avoidance or for example, one of the prisoners I interviewed told me about the officers on the hall where he was cleaning were trying to joke with him, trying to be buddy-buddy, friendly. And he refused. He refused to smile. He refused to laugh. He refused to engage in their buddy-buddy joking because he said to me, I'm not their buddy, but I'm going to open myself to get my feelings hurt when if I pretend to be their friend when they're friendly with me. And then they crack down on me and throw me in solitary if I look at him funny. Um, so I'm refusing to engage in that. And that kind of refusal is, in fact, a form of compliance because they're supposed to be submissive to everything, even officers overtures of friendliness. Um, and in fact, when he refused to joke around with them, they were like, oh, we don't like your attitude. Go lock it in. Go back to your cell. Now, for the two student groups, such resistance was even harder because their future careers, if they had any hope of getting an academic job or going to the NFL or the NF NBA, they totally relied on their coaches and their advisors' recommendations to do so. And so they had much less capacity to even engage in that form of resistance. And finally, um, 
Do you have any thoughts in the light of all this on today's essential workers uh, who can't get protective equipment or a decent wage, but are nonetheless celebrated as heroes? That's right. I mean, so the hero rhetoric is kind of another form of rhetoric that is used in this case to, to hold workers up and to recognize their importance. So on the one hand, it's it's welcome, this new recognition of these frontline service sector workers, grocery store stockers, food delivery workers as important workers, because they are. And they have long been important in our service economy. Our economy is built on the service industry today. But at the same time, this rhetoric is really used to say they're important without get, without treating them as if they were important, without giving them proper protective equipment, without giving them the wages and the real monetary um, recognition that they need and deserve. Um, so it is really important to be wary when words replace actions, as we have seen. But in in the light of the this public health crisis and this economic crisis, we have seen moments and spaces where these groups of workers who um, have not, at least in recent history, come together in the way that they are now, recognizing their importance and using this leverage to demand changes, to demand protections, to demand better wages. That was Erin Hatton, Associate Professor of Sociology at Buffalo University. Her book, Coerced, Work Under the Threat of Punishment, was published a few months ago by the University of California Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, Some of Police on My Back by The Clash. Till next week, bye.